0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: We decided to give it a shot, to give this medication off-label for the sinuses. So what we ended up doing in our protocol is giving the gabapentin 600 milligrams one hour before the procedure. And we kind of looked at patients in two different arms. Uh, We looked at a group of patients that didn't get the gabapentin and a group of patients that did get the gabapentin. And we monitored their pain every five minutes and developed these graphs to kind of figure out where the pain was and wanted to see if there was any statistically different level of pain between the two groups of patients and we found that yes with the gabapentin at all time points the pain was no greater than a five out of ten whereas again in the patients without gabapentin it can be quite severe in some situations so it really dropped the peak of the pain it didn't get rid of the pain completely just kind of limited the amount of the pain that patients were feeling into a way that was quite bearable and much more tolerable
0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. And now a quick word from our sponsor, Stryker. Stryker's ENT solutions offer the control you need, the flexibility you want, and enable you to deliver the experience your patients deserve. With Stryker, you gain access to the most complete suite of solutions to help make your vision of patient care a reality. From technology to training, from reimbursement tools to patient education, Stryker is there to help. Together with their customers, they are driven to make healthcare better. Learn more at ent.stryker.com. Now back to the show. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist, and today I have a very special guest. I have Dr. Jeffrey Sue. He is a professor of otolaryngology at the University of California, Los Angeles. He completed medical school and residency at UCLA and pursued a rhinology fellowship at the University of Pennsylvania. Jeff is here today to talk to us about cryotherapy for chronic rhinitis and nasal congestion. Welcome to the show, Jeff. How are you?
1: Very good. Thanks, Gopi. Thanks for having me.
0: Can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice?
1: Sure. So I've been at UCLA now for 12 years. I'm a rhinologist here at a very busy tertiary academic hospital. As you mentioned, I'm a Los Angeles native. I did my college med school and residency all at UCLA. And then I spent a year to do my rhinology fellowship training at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Awesome. Well, today we're going to talk about chronic rhinitis and congestion. So um, just kind of getting started, how do some of these patients present to you?
1: So chronic rhinitis is a, it's a very common condition. I think all of us at some point have had a runny nose for a number of reasons, whether it's from allergies, whether it's from being sick, or just any number of other causes like just eating spicy food causing our nose to run. So it's a very common problem that affects a lot of different people. What's fascinating is that as an ENT, we don't really think very much of this condition. In fact, it's not as exciting as some of the other surgical conditions we treat like chronic sinusitis or even nasal obstruction. But it's a problem with a very high prevalence that until recently didn't really have that many surgical options for our patients.
0: In terms of in your history, when a patient comes to you, what kinds of questions do you always ask them? What are you trying to tease apart? How do you distinguish chronic sinusitis from just chronic rhinitis? Because sometimes to me that can be difficult.
1: Yeah, no, that's a a great question. It's a really important thing for a surgeon to differentiate. There's so many different causes that have very similar symptoms in the nasal cavity and the sinuses, in order to offer the best treatment, we have to really get down to what's causing the symptoms. For rhinitis, which is basically runny nose, there could be any number of different causes for this condition, and each one can be treated differently. For example, if you have chronic sinusitis, you can have drainage from your sinuses, you can have congestion, obstruction, mucus in the nose, and the treatment options are very different. It could be using antibiotics, topical steroids, needing surgery in the sinuses, whether it's allergies. And for allergies, it's really identifying the cause of the allergies, whether it's environmental, food. And then for some people, it's non-allergic causes of rhinitis, which is kind of the focus of many of these surgical treatments that have been developed over the last five or six years.
0: And are there certain, so we said certain risk factors are going to be allergies, non-allergic causes. Can you get into some of the non-allergic causes that you're asking about?
1: The classic patient that I see that has non-allergic rhinitis, and it's it happens to all of us, are if I'm eating spicy food, and I love spicy food, and my nose starts to run after I eat, that is kind of a classic symptom of gusatory rhinitis, which is basically a non-allergic cause of a runny nose that's pretty common and affects a lot of us. Another one that I hear from my patients are the ones that are really active, that they run outside, when the air is cold, their nose runs as they're running. And that can be bothersome if they're running long distances. It can happen quite a bit for these people, and they're looking for a treatment option for this. The other classic patient that I see with non-allergic rhinitis are my elderly patients, the one that comes from nursing homes that are coming in on walkers or canes, and they're in their nursing home, they're saying that all the time their nose is running. And they're distressed by this. They're distressed so much that they want to go to the doctor's office and find a a treatment option. Prior to cryotherapy or the other treatments that are now available surgically for us, we would just try to put them on sprays and the sprays were not that effective.
0: I mean, it's like, where do I wipe my nose, right? Like it's usually we're talking about clear rhinorrhea.
1: Clear rhinorrhea, both sides. Yeah. And without typically any allergic trigger, they're just doing their normal things in life and their nose starts to run.
0: Yeah. It's embarrassing. I mean, you're in the middle of talking to somebody and you can feel it. And then do you have anything to wipe your nose? I mean, it it definitely has its (laughs) embarrassing moments. I've had my issues with rhinitis before. So, okay. So the patient comes in, you're kind of teasing the history. What are the triggers? Is there a certain length of time that you look for to make it chronic? Is it usually that three-month mark that we think of in sinus or?
1: You know, that's really it. You want to make sure that it's not an acute issue. So viruses, other types of infections certain environmental exposures can cause injury to the mucosa and cause a reaction causing a runny nose and rhinitis and congestion. So we really want to tease out the duration of the symptoms. A lot of the time, if it's acute, it'll resolve just with conservative medical therapy or just watching and waiting. It's really that the symptoms that persist. And these patients often say that for years or for months or for as long as they can remember, they've had a runny nose. And they're the ones that are seeking care from the ENT doctor's office because it's out of the normal of what they would typically expect their nose to feel like.
0: How often is something like just nasal congestion or nasal obstruction associated with these symptoms when we're thinking of the chronic rhinitis patient, not the chronic rhinosinusitis patient?
1: I would say that typically the symptoms can overlap. There's some people that do have nasal obstruction, you know, other symptoms of their sinuses at the same time as rhinitis, but the classic patient that is That presents with chronic rhinitis really just presents with runny nose as their primary symptom and there can be other factors you can have mixed symptoms where there's some allergic component and a non-allergic component they can have some sinus issues and rhinitis but typically it's the classic i'm exercising and my nose runs i'm eating spicy food and my nose runs or i'm just sitting around doing nothing and I'm not in an environment where my allergies are active and my nose is running. Yeah. And those are the targets for some of these really novel procedures that have been developed recently for us.
0: So when the patient's with you, you've gone through your history. Tell me what your physical exam looks like. You know, are you always scoping? It just anterior rhinoscopy kind of gives you an idea. Tell me what you do.
1: Right. So in my practice as a rhinologist, I always want to make sure that any surgical intervention that I might suggest has a very high chance of working. And the reason why I think Endoscopy is important. So I use rigid endoscopes. Is that I want to make sure that there's no other cause of this symptom that might need to be addressed and addressed differently than some of the other options for vasomotor rhinitis. So my uh, nasal endoscopy will include looking at the septum, the turbinates, the sinuses. The nasopharynx, it's surprising how often people can have adenoiditis or nasopharyngitis as a cause of their postnasal drip or nasal symptoms. And we see it a lot in kids, actually. That they... I
0: was going to say, now you're talking my language, right. the adenoiditis.
1: Right. And and that can be a, a very bothersome symptom that overlaps quite a bit with rhinitis. And especially in younger people and kids, because they've always had it, they don't know what the difference is. So part of the nasal endoscopy is always checking out the nasopharynx to making sure that there's no other cause of their symptoms that can be addressed differently than with nasal sprays.
0: Do you use nasal decongestants when you scope? Do you scope without any of those? Tell me about that.
1: So typically, the patients will find the pediatric nasal endoscopes that I use to be more comfortable than the standard adult ones, but uh, I always try to pre-medicate before I do an endoscopy with a combination of lidocaine and afrin spray, so the afrin will decongest the turbinates and the nasal mucosa, and then the lidocaine just makes it so it's a little bit less uncomfortable, especially when I really try to examine the nasal pharynx or the deeper parts of the sinuses. And then you give it about 10 minutes, and usually the procedure isn't too bad.
0: So you're using the PD, like 2.7 millimeter rigid scopes, always just use a zero or do you like a 30? What angles or unangled scopes do you like?
1: Yeah. So I typically use a 30 degree scope. I use a three millimeter or a 2.7 millimeter scope in the office and it just, the angled scope gives me the ability to kind of inspect the sinuses as I go in and out. So if I just use a zero, it's really great for the nasal cavity, good for looking at the nasal pharynx, but the angled scopes gives you an advantage to also examine the sinuses as you're going in and out.
0: For these patients, when I think of nasal endoscopy for like a chronic rhinosinusitis patient, you know, maybe we see a polyp, maybe we see eucopus or pus or, you know, edema. Are there certain findings with just chronic rhinitis or does their nose look pretty otherwise healthy? And I guess it, the allergy role may also, if there's allergies, might play a role. But tell me about what you see usually.
1: Right. So in a classic patient, let's go back to the 85-year-old elderly patient that comes in on a walker from a nursing home. When you examine them in the office after you decongest their nose with the spray, their nose actually looks pretty normal. They might have the standard findings of maybe a slightly deviated septum, maybe a little bit of turbine hypertrophy, but the sinuses are clear, the nasal pharynx is clear, there's no signs of any infection on the turbinates or in the sinuses, and their nasal exam would otherwise be normal. And in the past, coming out of residency, we would say, there's really nothing we can do. You know, just go back to see the allergist, use those nasal sprays, and it was really nice to meet you.
0: That's so sad, right?
1: <laughs> it is. It was so sad for them. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. So at this point, what's part of your workup? When do you, you know, if the patient hasn't had allergy testing, when do you consider something like that? Or how do you, you know, manage this patient?
1: It all goes back to the, the first initial exam, the history and then the physical exam. When I have residents that are with me in the clinic, that's always trying to kind of understand the etiology of their symptoms, create a differential diagnosis and then ideally pursuing medical therapy before recommending any types of surgery. There is some benefit for a CT scan sometimes of the sinuses. If you see any signs of chronic inflammation, polyps like you mentioned, or drainage from the sinuses, and standard medical therapy is ineffective, then sometimes radiology can give more insight into some things that might need to be addressed in the sinuses themselves. But given the typical chronic rhinitis patient, everything being normal on the first nasal endoscopy often is trying to differentiate whether there might be some allergic triggers, so an allergic rhinitis versus a non-allergic. And if there's something in the story that points toward an allergic rhinitis, then typically I think, you know, seeing an allergist, understanding the triggers for their allergies, trying antihistamines, nasal steroid sprays would be beneficial. And then if it's purely non-allergic rhinitis, then there's a really great spray, which is atrovent or epitropium bromide which I'll typically use as a litmus test for the benefits of seeing if maybe a surgery would work for this patient.
0: So in a spray-naive patient, let's say that for some reason they got to you without ever trying a spray, do you usually, for the patient that doesn't have an allergy history, the nose doesn't look like an allergy, or maybe they had allergy testing and it was negative, would you start with the ipotropium bromide or would you start with something like the nasal steroid spray? Right. So like, is there an algorithm? Because I feel like what I've always read is, well, for allergic or non-allergic rhinitis, we do the sprays and there's a the nasal steroid spray, the antihistamine spray. You know, is there that algorithm or is it like, no, you don't have to do it that way and you can try this because, you know, I'm looking for this.
1: So the nasal steroid sprays, they're quite effective and people do use them for non-allergic and allergic rhinitis. And I feel that if there's congestion, if there's signs of allergies like sneezing, itchy, watery eyes and other things That would kind of make me feel that there's an allergic component, then the nasal steroid sprays are really effective. The biggest thing I try to teach my patients is these sprays generally have very little effect for the first few weeks. It's not a spray that's meant to be used just once and then see how it goes. And a lot of them have this feeling that they never work and they usually don't work if they're not used long enough. So I say if you're going to try nasal steroid spray, such as Flonase or Nasodex or Nasacort, give it at least a month before you make a judgment if it's effective or not. For pure, non-allergic rhinitis, I feel that Atrovent works phenomenally for just the drip. So, if a patient comes in with symptoms that seem like they're very specific for just chronic rhinitis without an allergic component, then I find that the reason why the patients are drawn toward Atrovent is that there's not that buildup that we need with the Flonase or the nasal steroid spray. If you use Atrovent right now, then whatever trigger there would normally be, whether it's eating the spicy food, or running outside, it will stop that drip immediately. So the patient will just know that when they try the Atrovent, if it works to prevent whatever the next trigger would be, it's likely to be allergic rhinitis. The only downside of the Atrovent spray is that it doesn't last for very long. It works for about two hours, three hours. So it's really good to identify the potential cause of the rhinitis, but it's not necessarily the best long-term treatment option because the spray would have to be used pretty regularly.
0: Yeah. Is it like a, how often do you prescribe it? Like twice a day or like four times a day?
1: It's really as needed. They can use it before whatever meal would make their nose run. They can use it before the exercise. They can use it throughout the day. I don't find the spray to have any addictive qualities like decongestant sprays like Afrin. There's no withdrawal. There's no buildup. It's just that they might be using it pretty frequently
0: they have to use it 30 minutes before, or does it work pretty instantaneously in your experience?
1: I typically say that they should use it 30 minutes before the event. Okay. And then usually by then it works, but some patients say it works pretty quickly. Yeah. Even faster than that.
0: So this patient that's come to your clinic, you send them home, and you're going to try the Atrovent or the ipotromium bromide. How, when is your follow-up? How long do you tell them to try it for?
1: In my experience now, I feel that the Atrovent works pretty quickly. And they get a pretty good sense if it's working because that's not the most common spray that a lot of their primary care doctors or allergists would give them. So it's something they haven't had before. So when they try it, they're like, wow, this works really well. Or they're, well, it's not working at all. And then when they come back to me, whether it's by messaging me on our EMR or emailing me or coming back for another appointment, they tend to know pretty quickly if it's going to work. A couple of weeks. And I always give them the option. I'm like, well, you know, I I feel like, you know, we're going to try the spray. It's going to work pretty quickly. Just let me know what you feel. And typically I just give them an option of just messaging me and letting me know if it works. And then we just will chat about it, you know, whether or not they like the spray, they could see it as being a long-term option, or if they just want to know what other options are out there besides using the spray.
0: And then is there any role for like saline rinses or saline mist for chronic rhinitis? Does that do anything? I mean, we love to wash everything out, but does it, right. does it help their symptoms at all? Like, Yeah. I use saline rinses twice a day. Am I going to not have a runny nose the next time I'm outside in the afternoon when it's cold?
1: So saline rinses are phenomenal. We've been using them for our patients with chronic sinus disease forever, for allergies, and patients are drawn toward it because it's safe, it's homeopathic, there's no medications that are in it, and it makes them feel better. With rhinitis, it does kind of help with maybe the congestion of the turbinates, maybe eliminating any allergen that might be triggering some of the symptoms, maybe washing away some of the mucus. But for classic chronic rhinitis, I don't feel like it's as effective because typically, The etiology of the rhinitis in this situation is um, a nerve stimulation, that something is causing the nerve to be stimulated, and then rinsing doesn't really have the same effect as it would in someone that's being exposed to dust, pollen, allergens, cat hair in that way. Or our patients with chronic sinusitis, they're actually trying to get out the mucus from their sinuses, so the rinses is really effective. This is more of a, at least in the way that I look at, more of a stimulation of the nerve rather than something that is in or on the sinuses.
0: So let's say a patient responds and they say, hey, you know, it's been a month, it's not working, or it's really helpful, but I don't want to carry my spray around or be on a spray. What do you do next?
1: This is the exciting part of where (sighs) things have changed from when I finished residency. So before we had these really phenomenal treatment options, and there's a few now, we would just say, great, just keep on using those sprays please don't come back and see me. There's really not much more I can do to offer you any surgical treatment and follow up with your primary care doctor or your allergist. Now we have these great options where you can say, if you're happy with the spray and you're not using it very much, and now that you understand the etiology or the reasons that you're having your rhinitis, you can use the spray if you like. But now in the last six, seven years, there are some very simple procedures we can do both in the office or in the operating room that will duplicate the effects of the spray, is the way that I usually phrase it, for a year or two or more.
0: And so today we're going to focus on cryotherapy. Is that what you traditionally use or have a preference for?
1: It is, yeah. Is
0: there anything else besides the cryotherapy and the radiofrequency?
1: So th- there are some old school surgical techniques that we all learn in residency. And what cryotherapy is, it's typically what I use. I find it to be the most effective and it covers kind of a wide treatment area and we'll kind of discuss this, whereas radiofrequency is a newer option that also kind of targets this nerve called the posterior nasal nerve. The earlier branch of this nerve, and I love talking about the anatomy of the sinuses. so the posterior nasal nerve is the end nerve that we focus on for our surgical treatments for rhinitis and it's kind of the area that the the atrovent spray also works on. The earlier part of this nerve is called the vidian nerve. So when we were residents, we learned about this surgery, which is basically cutting the vidian nerve, so a vidian neurectomy. And that surgery works because you're basically cutting off the nerve that's responsible for for drip inside the nose. But unfortunately, the vidian nerve also innervates the lacrimal gland. If you disrupt the innervation of the lacrimal gland, then the patients can't cry or they can't tear, so they get dry eyes. So it's not a very good surgical procedure because of the The consequences of the surgery itself. Um, So, this is a much more direct treatment just for the rhinitis. That our patients have.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the VD and neurectomy, that's not a, it's kind of, it can bleed a lot, the dry eye. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a lot more to it than just, oh, we're going to go in and open, you have to open a, you know, do a, like a real fest.
1: <laughs> right.
0: You know, to get your exposure, not an easy, uh, a quick little in and out. So in terms of cryotherapy, what happens?
1: So this procedure, I think um, I first heard about it in 2017. And, you know, again, I was fascinated by the idea that we can that there's a a new treatment option for patients that have rhinitis and the procedure is quite simple is the area of the middle meatus so it's an area that all of us when we do sinus surgery we enter to do our maxillary antrosomies and our ethmoidectomies specifically it's where the middle turbinate attaches to the lateral nasal wall there's a structure called the basal lamella and where the basal lamella attaches to the lateral wall behind them mucosa, a nerve comes out called the posterior nasal nerve. And what cryotherapy is, it's in the form that we use it for Clarifix. It's a balloon that you insert inside the middle meatus. And then when you activate the cryogen, it fills the balloon with cold liquid nitrogen, essentially, that will have the effect on the mucosa and the nerve underneath the mucosa, which is the posterior nasal nerve. And you just repeat it on the left and the right side on these patients that have rhinitis the cryogen acts for about 30 seconds before you turn it off and then you pull out the device. It's it's quite simple and typically the actual procedure component itself is less than a minute per side.
0: In terms of patients who benefit, is this going to be is there a zero difference in outcomes for allergic versus non-allergic rhinitis? Is it better for a certain, you know, subgroup of the rhinitis patient? Who's this for?
1: You know, in my experience, I use it in all of my patients that have non-allergic rhinitis that are either candidates for the surgery because of a positive atroven response or in patients that have a mixed rhinitis. So they might have allergic rhinitis, which is pretty common. And there's some component that I suspect is a non-allergic rhinitis. So I would say the majority of otolaryngologists that I know do it in patients with non-allergic rhinitis and patients with mixed rhinitis. But the literature suggests that patients with allergic rhinitis also have some benefit. I'm not fully clear on the mechanism of which it would work in patients with allergic rhinitis because it seems to me that it's more of a histamine-driven allergic response, but patients and ENT doctors have had benefit in this population.
0: Both groups could somehow get some benefit. Is it less beneficial? Is the benefit a little bit less in the allergy? Or do those patients, the allergy patients, get the same amount of benefit as your non-allergy rhinitis patients?
1: It's very similar in benefit, which, again, is surprising to me that patients with allergic rhinitis also benefit from the procedure. But for me, the the patient that I really suggest this procedure to are the atrivent responders, which tend to be the ones that have non-allergic rhinitis as their primary diagnosis.
0: And how do you, like, how do you counsel patients before this in terms of post-op pain, recovery, or the buzzword? You know, we hear about the ice cream headache. What's that?
1: There's two settings that the procedure can be done in. It can be done in the office when the patient's awake under local anesthesia. And that is a very different conversation than patients that you might do in conjunction with some other procedure in the operating room. So the easiest one, and maybe we'll start with that, are the ones that are the procedures that are done in a patient that's having surgery for another reason. So, for example, let's say you examine the patient in the office. You think they're a fantastic candidate for let's say, cryoblation or clarifix, and you would love to do it, but their anatomy isn't optimal. So let's say their septum is crooked, and if you can't get into the area of the middle meatus where you would do the procedure, you have to fix the septum to get access to do the procedure. So if the patient's asleep and you fix the septum, you reduce the turbinance like you would for their nasal obstruction, and you do the clarifix, then it just adds about 30 seconds per side. After you finish the septoplasty, you would ask your nurse for the Clarifix, and you would do it on the left and right side, and it really doesn't add very much time. And by the time the patient's awake, there really are no other side effects to the procedure. The cold, the thawing, it's already happened already. By the time they're in the recovery room, they feel great.
0: Yeah. Do you have to take your cryo over, or does your OR already have the
1: equipment? It's a different process to get it in the operating room as as it is in the office. So I've used it in Kind of both locations. So in the office, it, at least for ENT doctors, they have to go through the standard trial process to get it approved by the hospital, the hospital administration. You have to kind of weigh the pros and cons of cost and efficacy. So in my hospital, we carry it, we've carried it for a long time. And in this scenario, whether it's with sinus surgery, which is something that I do not infrequently, or again, for access purposes as part of a septoplasty surgery. It's really effective. It's really easy. And I think it's a great way for those otolaryngologists that haven't used the procedure to give it a shot. You know, there's really no differences in terms of your anesthesia protocol because the patient's already asleep. And what I would recommend, you just get your local rep to come in to make sure that the nurses know how to set everything up with the Clarifix device. And you just do it as part of your standard surgeries you do in the nose, endoscopically.
0: For the patients that do have, let's say, chronic sinusitis, let's say they don't have polyps, or let's say they do, how do you know when, which patients would also benefit from getting the cryo at the same time as their sinus surgery? Because it makes sense in terms of access for the septoplasty or, you know, nasal obstruction, but how do you know which patients, like, hey, this one actually needs the cryo too?
1: But the majority of my practice are for patients that have chronic sinusitis as a rhinologist. So, The kind of the type of patient that clued me in that there might be some sort of benefit for Clarifix in my patients with chronic sinusitis came really after the fact. So patients with chronic sinusitis have chronic sinus issues for a number of reasons, whether it's allergies or infection or abnormal anatomy or genetics or any number of causes. So once you identify that a patient needs to have sinus surgery, you do your sinus surgery and the standard medical therapy is using topical steroids and irrigation long-term in the majority of these patients. And what I've found in having been in practice now for over a decade is that I will do the best sinus surgery I could possibly do, put them on the correct medical therapy for what I think is the etiology of their sinus issues, and then they'll still have rhinitis after I do my sinus surgery. And for some people that is really bothersome. You know, they might be very happy with not having infections or not having polyps or getting their sense of smell and taste back, but they could still be very annoyed by the fact that their nose runs all the time. So then what I was doing in those patients is saying, what did I miss? You know, did I miss something in the initial diagnosis because I was so focused on their sinuses. And what I found is that there are some patients that have chronic sinusitis that also have chronic rhinitis that would benefit from having clarifix done during the same operation. So now I'm very tuned in to my patient's symptoms beforehand and you know I might try them on atroed before their sinus surgery if they have some benefit I'll just add that on to the sinus surgery and I feel like they're benefiting from that additional procedure to address the symptoms that might not have been addressed only with sinus surgery
0: because those are I, I still uh, clinically that the chronic rhinitis and then chronic sinusitis, I think those are hard to distinguish as two separate things, right? You think of post nasal drainage, runny nose, rhinitis as part of chronic rhinosinusitis. And it it does make sense that, well, if the atrovent works, then maybe that posterior nasal nerve is playing a role here as well. Do you have them do your standard sinus rinses, nasal steroids for like a month and then add the atrovent to see if it's helping or not? How can you tell that the atrovent's helping? Because with maximal medical management for chronic rhinosinusitis. Sometimes it's three, you know, antibiotics, uh, nasal steroids, maybe oral steroids, you know, antihistamine nasal spray, and we're going to do the flows. Oh, and I need you to rinse four times a day.
1: (laughs) It's really, it's totally true. You know, when I, when I see patients for the first time, especially the ones that haven't had a lot of medical therapy, I'm throwing on all these different medicines at the exact same time. And a lot of the patients will be like, well, which one is the one that's actually working for me? Is it the antihistamine spray? Is it the nasal steroid spray? Is it just that I'm rinsing my sinuses? And to add in another spray like Atrivent, which one is the one that's actually working? And And what I tell my patients generally is that each one has a different mechanism of action and each one will take a different amount of time to work. And usually the nasal steroid sprays, whether they're using a standard nasal steroid spray like Flonase or maybe rinsing their sinuses uh, with a steroid in their sinus irrigation, typically nasal steroid sprays, we say, will take about three to four weeks to work before they really notice the benefit. Whereas Atrovent again, works immediately, that if they use the Atrovent spray now, within 30 minutes, they're going to notice a benefit. The overlap is, you know, most of the antihistamine sprays work pretty quickly too, and the Atrovent spray works pretty quickly. So usually I have them separate those two first. But the nasal steroid spray, I have them starred because it can take a few weeks for that to work. But the antihistamine spray or the Atrivent spray, I try to have them stagger it so they can tell which one is benefiting them more.
0: That makes sense when you put it that way, because I think of all the things I put my kids on and I'm like, oh yeah, and I need you to...
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Anyways, but um, okay, so let's talk about the patients that you're doing this procedure on in the office. Tell me how you get it set up. You know, what what is this a deeper procedure day in the office? Are you kind of bouncing back and forth? Are you numbing him up in a special way? Give us tell us how what how do you go through it with them?
1: You know, everybody's practice is different. Uh, I've noticed that some of my colleagues have procedure days where they'll kind of group their in-office procedures altogether. So they'll have a few rooms going simultaneously where they can provide anesthesia, kind of recovery and time to do the procedure and just in a day where they're kind of, kind of maximizing their procedure room or their in-office procedures altogether. So for me, I, I just have very limited clinic time. So I, I will kind of bounce around rooms where uh, once I identify the patient being a good candidate and what that means is anatomically, they have the right anatomy to allow me to do the procedure. So no subtle deviation, And importantly, also, whether or not you think as a doctor, the patient can tolerate the procedure, right? So some patients that are really anxious or just the sight of the scope or the idea of doing something awake horrifies them or make them, you know, pass out or have a vasovagal reaction. um, You just, you tend to kind of deselect those patients for an office procedure.
0: So no papoos.
1: Right. I'm just kidding. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just kidding. That's my world.
1: (laughs) So patients that are great candidates, that are excited about doing it in the office, that don't want to miss any work, that don't want to go through a procedure in the operating room, these are the ones we kind of target for office procedures. And if they kind of check off all the boxes where every step of the way you don't see any barriers, then you offer them an in-office date for this procedure. So typically as surgeons, we have to get authorization for the procedure. So we had to kind of submit for the, the codes to be done in the office. And then uh, we have to get the device to the office and then just make sure that we have enough time for the procedure. So usually I don't do it the same day that I diagnose them. So I'll bring them back. Usually I kind of have an hour blocked off for this patient. Now, again, I could be doing other things at the same time, but it takes time for the patient to, to numb the nose adequately. And um, there's a kind of every doctor has their own anesthesia protocol, and I'll kind of talk about mine, which is, it's different than most, I think, but I can kind of talk about what I think has been effective for me. The biggest thing about this procedure is that there's two phases that need to be addressed with the anesthesia. The first part is the part that makes sense, is that when you put the probe in the nose and you freeze the nose, um, if the nose is not adequately anesthetized, they can feel coldness or discomfort during the procedure itself. And the Sander things we do as ENT doctors to numb the nose for biopsies or balloon dilation of the sinuses tend to work really well for the actual procedure itself to get rid of the discomfort during the freezing. So what I typically start is with the combination of the lidocaine and the Afrin spray that we use for any of our patients to get nasal endoscopy. And then I'll give that a little bit of time to work. And then I'll put in some pledgets that are soaked with lidocaine into the middle meatus specifically, and part of it will cover the inferior turbinate. So we call this the landing zone. Anywhere that the cryogen will be touching, I try to put the anesthetic in, which is usually the lateral nasal wall, the middle turbinate, and really the top of the inferior turbinate where the probe will be touching as well. So that's the easy stuff. It's the, I think it's 3% lidocaine. And I've noticed that other doctors have had some phenomenal benefit with Tetracaine applied topically, so some compounding pharmacies can provide tetracaine into a goo, and that provides really deep anesthesia into the the tissue more so than lidocaine. So I use the lidocaine and the Afrin spray, and then lidocaine on the the topical half by three pledgets, and then after that's been numbed up for a while, then I'll use some one percent with one to one hundred thousand epinephrine, like I would do during sinus surgery or a balloon surgery in the area of the middle meatus. So I'll pretty much inject where the sphenopalatine artery is, right where the basal amella attaches to the lateral nasal wall. And that's kind of the direct anesthetic into the area where the procedure is going to be kind of most effective.
0: What needle length and size do you use for your SPA injection?
1: So in most situations, I use a 25-gauge regular needle we use for local anesthetic for procedures. Sometimes it's not long enough, so I'll have a spinal needle available if I need to. But typically the standard 25-gauge needle would work, but for people that it's kind of a difficult area to reach or it's a little bit deeper, then I use a spinal needle.
0: And do you bend your needle, give it like a little 45 bend, and then kind of just turn your wrist? And
1: So I, I do bend the needle. You always have to bend it laterally, and it takes a little bit of practice, but it's very similar to the way that I think many of us have been doing in-office balloon procedure anesthesia.
0: And you're using your 30-degree scope for all this? Is that your preference? Or do you feel like you can see things better of where you need to see?
1: You know, for me, I just—I think I might have one zero-degree endoscope in the office, but I know you could do it with a zero-degree endoscope. I just like to have the ability to to look around corners. I'm just used to doing it with a 30, but I would say most otolaryngologists and most anatomy would be favorable to do this with a zero-degree scope. So really, whatever you have in the office. And once the nose is really decongested with the afrin, you tend to have a really good view unless the septum is in the way.
0: You're just spraying. You're not doing afrin pledgets. Or no, you are. You're doing the lidocaine 3% with afrin as your pledget.
1: Right. So the first spray is part afrin, part lidocaine, and then the pledgets are lidocaine with some afrin kind of on the pledgets, and then the local anesthesia. And again, what I've noticed is that some doctors that do quite a bit of these procedures in the office They'll skip the local anesthesia injection and just use the tetracaine, and they've had some great results. I just can't get compounded medications in, in my academic practice.
0: And then what are you doing in the second part or are you doing the cryo between the first and second part?
1: After the local injection, I'll give that a good 10, 15 minutes to take effect. And usually by that time, everything is numb in the nose. The patient can't feel anything and they're complaining about some of the lidocaine dripping down the back of their throat. And they're like, this is really uncomfortable but then you know they're ready. And then again, you do a final assessment to make sure that the patient is calm. They're excited about doing this. And then you have the time and the environment to kind of make sure that this procedure goes well.
0: I assume they're upright. They're not laying down. You do this upright. Is that your preference?
1: Yeah. So sitting upright or maybe slightly tilted back, but definitely not lying on their back. So mostly upright. And it, again, it's it, it almost parallels the way that we would do balloon sinuplasty for a lot of our patients in the office. So They're sitting upright, they're comfortable, their nose is really numb at this point. There's some things that I kind of do to prepare for the other kind of post-procedural symptoms. So I kind of break it up into the procedural discomfort and then the post-procedural discomfort. And you've alluded to this a few times where usually the topical anesthetics works really well to make it so the procedure itself, which is the freezing, is not uncomfortable at all. And then after the procedure is done, which we'll talk about, there's this delayed effect, which can hit about five to 10 minutes later, where as the frozen mucosa is thawing, they can develop an ice cream headache like we get when we eat something that's too cold too quickly. Sometimes it's pretty uncomfortable and other times it's really not that bad at all. And all of us as surgeons that do this in the office have different ways we kind of try to get that post-procedural ice cream headache to be as, as low as possible.
0: What do you do for that? Does it last for just a few minutes or is this something that they're going to feel for like a couple of hours? And then how do you manage it?
1: So, what I've researched actually is it's just that very thing. When I was doing the procedure initially in the office, in about 30 minutes, the ice cream headache would resolve. They would walk out of the clinic. They'd be totally comfortable. They'd be happy they did it. It wasn't that bad. And then you just kind of wait for the benefits to kick in a few weeks after the procedure. But for some people, the ice cream headache can be pretty uncomfortable where their head hurts, their palate can hurt, their upper teeth can hurt, and it, it can be pretty severe. Some people describe it as a 10 out of 10 in terms of discomfort. Some people say it's a 5 out of 10 and it's not too bad. And then we would do all these different things to make it better, whether it's doing more local anesthesia. I've noticed that if you kind of gargle hot water, then the heart palate discomfort gets better a little bit more quickly, but it's always over in about 30 minutes. It just, it, how do we get to that 30 minutes without it being too uncomfortable? So, I would say back in, I think, 2019, I was kind of discussing this post-procedural ice cream headache with one of my colleagues. So Toby Steele is a rhinologist up at UC Davis, and we kind of talked about our patients were kind of having the same discomfort. And then it sounded very nerve-related pain to me, that it must have been the, the nerve being affected in the way that we wanted it to be effective. And it was really the nerve pain that was causing the ice cream headache. So then for some of our patients that have nerve-related pain, we give a medication called gabapentin. So gabapentin, is a, it's a medication that some diabetic patients use for their nerve pain and their feet it tends to be pretty effective or a certain type of headache conditions. This medication is used on label for. So we decided to give it a shot to give this medication off label for the sinuses. So what we ended up doing in our protocol is giving the gabapentin 600 milligrams one hour before the procedure. And we kind of looked at patients in two different arms. Uh, we looked at a group of patients that didn't get the gabapentin and a group of patients that did get the gabapentin. And we monitored their pain every five minutes and developed these graphs to kind of figure out where the pain was and wanted to see if there was any statistically different level of pain between the two groups of patients. And we found that, yes, with the gabapentin, at all time points, the pain was no greater than a 5 out of 10. Whereas, again, in the patients without gabapentin, it can be quite severe in some situations. So it really dropped the peak of the pain. It didn't get rid of the pain completely, just kind of limited the amount of the pain that patients were feeling into a way that was quite bearable um, and much more tolerable. And now for all of my patients that get this procedure in the office, I pre-medicate them with a little bit of the gabapentin before, and I found that it's it's made a big difference in the amount of discomfort they have in the 10 to 30 minutes after the procedure is done.
0: Have you noticed any risk factors or patient characteristics where you're like, this person's probably going to get an ice cream headache? Or, you know, this one's probably gonna be fine. Have you noticed anything like that in the in your data?
1: No, you know, I, I think location is one factor that if you're really burning, you know, using the cryogen in the correct spot and you're really getting the nerve where it's supposed to be coming out of, then they, they tend to get this procedure. I can't really predict which ones won't get it. I just kind of assume that all patients will have an ice cream headache to some extent. And then for some, it's worse than others. And some people it's, it's really quite debilitating and other people describe it as being just A little bit more discomfort after the procedure than it wears off pretty quickly. For that reason, because all patients I feel get it to some extent, even with the anesthetic protocol that I use, I I really kind of rely on the gabapentin to make it more tolerable.
0: In terms of um, going into the procedure, so the balloon's kind of like, it's the size of a small pledget, like a square of a size, right? It's kind of, it's not that small, (laughs) right? Right? It's, It's like the one, like half by half square pledget size. Right. And so when you go in, how do you know you're in the right spot? It's going to cover a large area, right? But the area we want to cover is pretty posterior.
1: Right. The the benefit of this device versus the radiofrequency ablation device, which we also use in our hospital, is that the horizontal and the vertical segments of the basal lamella, meaning where the middle turbinate turns in the coronal plane and it attaches to the lateral nasal wall, is a barrier that will stop the tip of the balloon, which is the top the Clarifix device. So, when you put the Clarifix device, which the tip is the balloon, into the middle meatus, so we can see the middle turbinate, we can see the lateral nasal wall, and we slide it in the middle meatus, when it stops, it means that it's hit the basal lamella. So, that's the end point of where the balloon needs to go. So, in some ways, the Clarifix requires less visibility or less exposure of the middle meatus than the radio frequency device, which really requires you to see the exact area that the probe is being touched into. So the Clarifix balloon will hit the basal lamella, which is the end posterior portion of the middle meatus. And then you you run the balloon for 30 seconds. And if you hit that area in the middle meatus, that's the exact area that it needs to be in. And then the cryogen really spreads everywhere in the middle meatus, which is why I feel that even with a little bit less exposure to the area, less access, um, you know, it's going to work.
0: And is there a certain setting or is it one of those where you put the wand in and there are settings for you or do you...
1: Yeah, it's really just an on and off. You put in the middle meatus, you flip the trigger, which is the safety, and then you you squeeze the trigger and either your nurse or, you know, your assistant will look for that 30-second mark and then they'll let you know that the 30 seconds are done. You turn off the gas and then you have to wait for a little bit because just like if you touch, you know, your tongue on something that's frozen, it'll be stuck. So, typically, you have to let it thaw for about 30 to 45 seconds after the freezing. And that way, when you take out the, the Clarifix device, it's not stuck to the mucosa. Because one of the potential or theoretical risks of this procedure is that it can cause bleeding if you damage the mucosa. So, you want to wait till a good 30 to 45 seconds after you finish the freezing before you gently wiggle the device to pull it out of the nose so you don't damage mucosa on the way out.
0: That's a good tip. I wouldn't have thought about that. (laughs) Here I am with a, you know, full nosebleed or tear in mucosa. So we've talked about the radiofrequency as well as the cryo, and it sounds like you have access to both technologies. How do you know which one you're going to choose for who? Or do you have a preference at this point in your practice? Because, you know, at the end of the day, as surgeons, there's certain things we just like to use better in terms of whether we're more facile with it, more familiar with it, you know, and those are our preferences which
1: play a role. You know, the the literature suggests that cryoablation and radio frequency ablation have done in the correct area. They can both have a positive effect in terms of symptom management because the posterior nasal nerve is being disrupted in both techniques. And it's there's a lot of different factors that will lead a surgeon to choose one device over the other, and luckily we're able to use both. I think one of the benefits of Clarifix over the radiofrequency ablation device, which is called Rhinair, is if the visibility into the middle meatus is restricted because of anatomical issues. Again, the septum being deviated, just a narrow nasal cavity, the Clarifix device, because it there is some tactile feedback to when you hit the basal lamella, you know you're in the right spot. You don't exactly have to see that it touches the basal lamella. You just know that what you're touching is the, the posterior extension of the middle meatus, which is where the cryogen probe needs to be. So if there's a little bit less visibility, I would say more patients are candidates in the office um, with the Clarifix procedure than the radiofrequency option. For the radiofrequency, you really need to see where the footplate of the probe is going to touch the lateral nasal wall in order to have the best effect of the nerve being ablated appropriately. And then hospitals, they, they will choose one device over the other. So sometimes cost is a factor and the hospital might say to a surgeon, well, of the two devices, we choose one over the other. And as a surgeon, you know, just taking comfort in knowing that both are effective, but the hospital might choose one over the other might lead you to say, well, I believe in the concept of the procedure to treat chronic rhinitis and I'll use one device over the other just because this is just what's available to me.
0: Those are good points. In terms of post-op, is there, do they have to do saline, flonase, is there any post-op care for these patients? Oitmet?
1: So typically there'll be some swelling in the mucosa of the middle meatus after the clarifix, and it can can last for about a week or two. So I'll put patients on their nasal sprays, so, you know, I'll say... If you were on Flonase before or Atrovent, you might need to use that spray for a few weeks before we really get a sense of if the procedure worked. Sinus irrigation will help too. It'll kind of help take away any kind of mucus that might be there because of the procedure causing swelling in the middle meatus. Um, Some people feel a little bit of pressure in their sinuses and the rinses and the sprays will often help. But also also if they do nothing, um, it'll eventually recover in a week or two and they'll feel normal. And then typically I say after a few weeks, you'll really get a sense of the procedure worked. In terms of how often the procedure works. Typically, it's about 80%. So, if you choose your patients really well, you have a very good chance of the patient benefiting from the procedure in the symptoms that the procedure is meant to address, whether it's congestion or rhinitis. There was a good paper that was published that demonstrated efficacy in this procedure. And typically, patients that respond to atrivent before the procedure have over an 80% chance of the procedure working. If you're an atrivent non-responder before surgery, it was less than a third. Responded so that's why I really feel that atrevent preoperatively is a litmus test to the success of the procedure. That if you benefited from atrevent, I can almost say to the patient, you'll feel like you're living on atrevent for a year or two after the procedure's done.
0: For the patients that don't respond to atrevent, <laughs> do you are you ever just like, well, we have nothing else that so we should try to do this because there's still a 30% chance, or is that silly, or are there other things that you do?
1: Right. So in those patients, I, again, I try to temper the expectation because I'm not quite as excited because I, as a surgeon, I want it to always work in our patients all the time. And when something, you know, doesn't have the greatest chance of being effective, I don't want to subject a patient to a procedure that, you know, might not work for them. So then I kind of think of it as a kind of a last resort. In those situations, I'll be, please, you know, try the nasal steroid spray, try the irrigation, see the allergist really focus on any other thing that we could possibly treat before we do this procedure. And if none of those things are effective and we're back to square one where you're totally desperate to get something done and all other medical therapy options and other diagnoses have been eliminated, then we can give it a shot knowing that we've tried everything else first. Whereas the atrivent responders, I really do feel that this is a phenomenal treatment option for non-allergic rhinitis in this population that are atrivent responders And in some ways, it's almost a first resort if they don't want to use the sprays anymore.
0: And in terms of success, is this like we did it once and you're good for five to 10 years? Or is this like, listen, this is on average a two-year thing and that's a good outcome. What defines a good outcome?
1: So typically, I would say that if they get a year of symptom benefit is what I used to feel was the kind of the gold procedure. Because again, the, the nerve is not being cut or damaged. It's just being stunned until it can regenerate over the course of a year or so. And we would expect that the nerve function would come back. Therefore, the rhinitis would come back after the nerve fully regenerates. But, you know, recently studies have shown that the efficacy does extend out to two years where patients that benefited the procedure can have sustained benefit for a while. I've repeated the procedure in my own experience for patients after a year. And they've also been able to benefit from the procedure again after the effects kind of started to wane. I've had patients that I've done it on that have never come back afterwards and have done really well for a few years afterwards so it really depends but i kind of tell them going into it that you might have to do this again the setting situation would be the same where if they handled it well in the office the first time we would do it back in the office the second time
0: and then are there any you know we talked about in the during the procedure we could cause bleeding or if we took out the wand too soon we could cause a mucosal injury any long-term complications with this?
1: I've i've never seen anything past the ice cream headache okay so, yeah, typically, if you remove the probe slowly, the mucosa won't be traumatized. And besides a little bit of edema in that area for, you know, the next week or so, it recovers totally normal. It's really just how do we make the procedure as comfortable as possible for the patients in the office, if you choose to do it in the office. And again, every doctor has their own anesthesia protocols. And I found that the, the use of gabapentin has been pretty effective. But once you get them past that 30 minutes and they're in their car, in the parking lot, driving home. They feel pretty good.
0: And then, um, one last question for you in terms of if you have to do a revision, or are there ever scenarios where you may have used one technology? And then, for are there any other reasons or scenarios where you might try again with a different technology?
1: There is. So, even with the same technology, so one of my colleagues at Mass Eye and Ear, Dr. Ben Blyer, has done some really phenomenal anatomic studies at where the posterior nerve exits into the sinuses and into the nasal cavity and there are some anatomic variants where the posterior nerve fibers are actually in the inferior meatus as opposed to the middle meatus. So I've had some patients initially that didn't fully respond to the procedure, and I took them back for an inferior meatus cryoablation. And that also uh, was effective in this small subset of people where uh, maybe the nerve fibers anatomically aren't where we expect them to be. And I went back to try again. Because these patients were still atrivent responders; they just didn't respond to the procedure itself, so I was kind of looking for other answers. So, my colleagues that do the radio Frequency Ablation as their preferred choice, they might do... So, typically, when I do air, it's three different locations of the footplate across the lateral nasal wall where we expect the nerve to be. So, you might consider doing more ablations than what's typically done to see if we can cover a bigger area. Again, just because anatomically, we want to make sure we get the nerve where it exits into the nasal cavity, and it might take different sites to actually achieve the effect that we want.
0: And with the cryotechnology, would you ever do more than do under the middle meatus and the inferior meatus at the same time, at the same balloon? Or do you just need to, hey, I'm going to do it. This is where it's most likely where the posterior nasal nerve is coming out, so we're going to start with that as opposed to crying the whole nose
1: right? So, the downside of doing the inferior meatal cryoblation is that they'll tend to get a lot more palate discomfort during the procedure because you're really, you're basically on the pterygoid plate right next to the greater palatine nerve and there might be some spread of the cryogen further lateral. They can have a lot of palate discomfort. So, in addition to the ice cream headache, then now they're going to have a lot of palate discomfort. So, I really have to choose those patients very carefully that they're ready to do this in the office. In the Operating room, there's very little downside because the patient's asleep. By the time the surgery is over, all the the post procedural discomfort will have already worn off. But in the office, it does take a very specific type of patient that you can do both the inferior medial procedure on and the middle medial procedure. And again, most anatomic posterior nasal nerves do come out of the middle meatus, so you'd capture the vast majority of people into the middle meatus. So I wouldn't say you have to do it in both places in the office. And I would say most of the time, the procedure is very effective in the middle meatus only as the sole site for the procedure.
0: And you're using the same wand balloon on both sides.
1: Yeah, so the, the limiting step for the wand is really the amount of cryogen. So you have two cartridges when you do the procedure and it lasts for about a minute per cartridge. So the typical cryoblation that we do is for about 30 seconds. So if you do it on one side, you have about twenty to thirty seconds left of that cryogen where, you know, if it activated without you potentially trying to or maybe ran out a little bit faster, what we typically do is we do one cryogen container on one side, we'll burn the extra gas, we'll just empty it, and then we'll put the other cartridge in for the other side. So you have one minute of gas per each side, but typically we just use thirty seconds of it.
0: In terms of the cryo, is there any special handling of the cartridges? Do you have to have special gloves or anything like that?
1: No, it's a separate, it's like a paintball cartridge. So it's like a little CO2 cartridge that you just drop into the back of the device. The the whole packaging is sterile, so it's usually done on the field if you're doing it in the operating room. But in the clinic, the nurses will just put on some gloves and drop the cartridge in on the backside. And yeah, it's really simple. It doesn't require any special handling. It doesn't really prior training. It's very simple to do. And it can
0: go in your regular trash bin. Yes. Do you see these patients back in a couple months or what's your follow-up like?
1: So usually what I say is that if there's any concerns after the procedure, just please let me know and I'll give them kind of an open-ended appointment in a month or so where they can come back to have me take a look to kind of make sure that they've healed well. And I used to do that all the time. Now I really just say, just let me know if there's any issues at all. If you have any discomfort or the procedure didn't work or if you want me to take a look at your nose or your sinuses, then schedule an appointment at that point. Otherwise, just shoot me a message. Let me know how it worked. And most people at that point say that, again, by the time they got home, they didn't really have any discomfort. And and they're really happy with the results.
0: Well, thank you so much, Jeff. As we round out, are there any final pearls that you want to leave our audience with?
1: Yeah, I would say to the otolaryngologists and uh, the people that would treat this disease process, you know, often for at least ENTs, it's a Is really an afterthought for a lot of the more exciting surgeries that we do. But this disease is pretty common. And if you ask uh, our patients that have nasal complaints, it's a lot more than we initially would have expected. And when we start asking you about it, you realize just how bothersome this is and how much it can really impact their quality of life. There are some phenomenal new treatment options and Clarifix being one of them to really provide patients with an alternative to medical therapy that is really effective, really easy to do, and really something that we can add into our practices where even though we weren't trained in it during residency, it's not very hard to learn how to do it. And our patients really do benefit from it. And I've really enjoyed being able to help patients in a different way than what I was able to do before.
0: If anybody in our audience uh, wanted to uh, learn more about Cryo or reach out to you, are you on any social media or is there a way they could get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so definitely uh, email is the best way, and I provide my email to all my patients and any colleagues that would want to reach out to me. I try to hide on social media, so I'm not really on social media, but yeah, if anyone wants to reach out, just uh, shoot me an email. You can call the office at any point. I'm really happy to give my anesthesia protocol or any tips that I've, I've had in the last six years of doing the procedure.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. Um, I learned a ton. I think it's a wrap. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan.
1: Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross. And Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from...
0: Taylor Spurgeon Hess. And Yvonne Arvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Kinnibur. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.